Mark chapter 14. And we're going to be looking from verses 26 to 52. But before we start, I feel my need to just ask the Lord for help. So would you join me as we pray? Lord, I pray for help this morning. It's no small thing to open your word. It's a frightening thing to preach it. Lord, I pray you would be in our midst. You promise God to be active when your word is preached. We pray that you would send your spirit to be active among us. I pray that you would comfort those who don't see your goodness. I pray that you would encourage those who feel abandoned. But I pray most of all that we would see you, Jesus, high and lifted up. I pray that you would be here in power, Holy Spirit, so that we might say, today we met with God. Lord, we ask these things because you are good and you delight to be amongst your people. And we pray for that this morning. In your name, amen. Today, we're going to go with Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane, and I'll tell you right up front, we're going to see a different side of Jesus. We're going to join Jesus, and we're going to see how he responds to his impending death. As his death hovers near, our Savior, I'll tell you right up front, nearly has a breakdown doesn't handle himself like we might expect. History is littered with valiant and heroic deaths. Deaths like Nathan Hale, the American revolutionary, whose last words as he spoke before he hung from the gallows were, I regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. Deaths like Socrates, who was condemned to death by poison in Athens. Plato records what happened. He was going to die by poison. And the executioner came in carrying a cup, reports Plato, that contained poison ground into the drink. When Socrates saw the man, he said, You, my good man, since you are experienced in these matters, should tell me what needs to be done. The man answered, You just need to drink it. That's all. While the man was still saying this, he handed the cup to Socrates, and Socrates took it in a cheerful way, not flinching or getting pale or grimacing. A heroic death. Another heroic death is Polycarp, first century Christian, when he was brought before a Roman proconsul for being a Christian. Here's the conversation that went on. The proconsul said, Reproach Christ or turn away from him, and I will set you free. Polycarp says, Eighty-six years I have served him, And he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and savior? I have wild animals here, said the proconsul. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Call them, Polycarp said. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. If you despise the animals, I will have you burned. You threaten me with fire, Polycarp says, that burns 
for an hour and then is extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. Many have been amazed at Hale, at Socrates, at Polycarp as death snarled in their faces and their response. Today we're going to join Jesus in the garden and he's going to face death with all of its menacing, snarling threats and he will not respond anything like Hale or Socrates or Polycarp. He doesn't say, come what may. He says, I don't want to do this. And the reason he responds the way he does will occupy most of our time this morning. And I hope that his response gets us to think. In some sense, unsettles us. Because the wonder of this passage is not that Jesus fearlessly faced death, but that he was horrified and forlorn and obediently died anyway. And I hope This picture in the garden of a horrified Jesus, I hope it stays with you. I hope it unsettles you. I hope it disturbs you. I hope it bothers you. Because only when we grasp the horror of Christ will we understand the love of God. So we're going to visit this garden. We're going to join him. They come to Jesus and his disciples Thursday evening after the Passover meal. And we'll join them as they go on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. You can follow along as I read beginning in Mark chapter 14, verse 26. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. He said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Jesus and his disciples left the home that they celebrated the Passover in and started the quarter mile, half mile, something like that walk to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. It wasn't much of a walk, but it was time enough for Jesus to tell them what was coming next. Now we can imagine that there was already a Paul that had settled over the group because they had been told that one of them, one of their number, one of their twelve would betray and become and act treacherously toward Jesus. So they were probably rocked by that, only to hear in verse 27, Jesus says, you will all fall away. Not only that, he quotes a prophet. He's got chapter, and he's got verse, and he's got prophecy on his side from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. Here's what's written. I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus is saying, I'm the shepherd, you're the sheep, you're going to be scattered. Now, his his hand-picked group seemed to be more trouble than they're worth at this point. One of them is a traitor, and 11 are going to be cowards. 
But cowards often talk big, and that's exactly what Peter did in verse 29. He says, even though they all fall away, I will not. I can see him pointing at all the other guys. Listen, even though all these losers leave, I'm with you. I'm with you. And Jesus calmly, patiently, clearly says, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter says, no way. If I die with you, I won't deny you. And they all said the same. All 11 of them at this point, so confident, so self-assured, so arrogant, so wrong. Talk, especially big talk, is cheap. And none of them would be able to cash the checks. Their mouths, their mouths were writing at this point. Jesus knew this, and Jesus responded graciously. Even before their response, look at verse 27 again. You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But look at verse 28. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. See what he's saying? All of you will deny me. You will all flee. You're all going to run for your lives. But I look forward to seeing you again after I come back from the dead. Now, this is just me. But if I am betrayed by people, I'm not making plans to see them in the future. This is what Jesus is doing. He's treating them better than they deserve. He knew that they would all fail him. He knew that they would all fall away. But their failure does not disqualify them from his blessing. He's already planning restoration, even as they say, we will not fall away. Failure does not mean disqualification. That walk, there was all kinds of big talk. On the walk, they make it to Gethsemane, and they arrive at the garden. We'll join them in the garden in Mark chapter 14, verse 32. You can follow along as I read. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took, Peter, took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. He came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came back and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. At the garden, when they arrive at the garden on the slopes of Mount Olives called Gethsemane, 
Jesus leaves most of his disciples in a spot and asks his friends, Peter, James, and John, to go further in with him. And Mark reports that he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Greatly distressed and troubled. And more than that, he opens up his soul to them, his friends, Peter, James, and John. He says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And his friends fall asleep. But I want us to see that Jesus is greatly distressed. And he is greatly troubled. He is sorrowful even to death. Jesus was, as you might say, not in a good headspace. He was distressed. He was troubled. Distress could be rendered astonished. I don't want us to miss this. Jesus is astonished. He's walking on the borders between despair and hopelessness here. In all of our travels to the book of Mark, we've never seen Jesus as astonished. He was the composed one. He's the unflappable one. He's the one who's got everything under control. Think back. He went into the desert and fasted 40 days to be tempted personally by the devil. No problem. He faces a man with a legion of demons. No one could handle He's got it. He sees a little girl dead and calls her back. He looks out on 5,000 hungry people and says, a few bread, a few fishes, they'll do. He rides in a storm that threatens everyone's lives and he speaks a word and it's gone. The disciples another time decide to cross the Sea of Galilee without him, and so he walks on water to catch up. He clears the temple. He takes on the Jewish authorities. He announces them to be hypocrites. Never in any of those situations or at any point so far in the book of Mark did we even whiff a sense of distress and trouble. He is not troubled. He is not distressed. He is not astonished. He is not surprised by anything. He had everything under control up until this moment when he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He was astonished. Now, Why? That's the question we have to ask. Why? It wasn't because Jesus was dealing with any new information. He knew what was going to happen. Remember, in our journeys with him, Through Mark, he's predicted three times that he would be betrayed, that he would be turned over to the Jewish authorities, he would be flogged, he'd be whipped, he'd be spat upon, and he would die. This isn't new information. The most recent time he predicted this was as they started their journey from Galilee in the north. He says, we're going to Jerusalem. Here's what's going to happen. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Jesus knew that this was coming. So what's going on in Gethsemane when Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled? What is making him astonished? He's not the kind that is astonished easily. We're not dealing with new information. Why is he recoiling at horror? What's going on? He knew this day was coming. 
Why was he surprised? It's clearer in verse 35. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground like his legs didn't work anymore and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. The reason Jesus began to be distressed and was astonished, the clue is found in the word cup. Jesus, whatever this cup is, Jesus is saying, I don't want that cup, and that cup frightens me. In the Old Testament, cup was always a metaphor for the wrath of God. Cup stood for the anger of God poured out. For example, in Ezekiel 23, God references his cup of wrath and describes the effects. He says, you will drink a cup of wrath, large and deep, full of ruin and desolation. You will tear at your breasts. And that's exactly what's happening to Jesus here. He realizes as he steps into the garden, he knew that he was going to die. But what he recognizes as he steps into the garden is that he was close. He was close to grabbing that cup full of ruin and desolation. And he was close to having to drink that down. You see, Jesus is facing something altogether distinctive, totally different than Hale or Socrates or Polycarp. They just faced death. Jesus is facing something far more menacing, something far more horrendous, something far more horrifying, something far more threatening. He's facing God's wrath for sin. He's facing God's wrath, God's fury for the sins of the world. And he's facing this alone. This is far more troubling. This is far more distressing. This is far more astonishing than death. It's astonishing because up to this point, he and the Father were inseparable. Not just from eternity past. There was never a time when the Father and the Son did not enjoy perfect harmony together. Even on earth, they were devoted to one another. On earth, Jesus walked with the Father. He talked with the Father. He, was always, he always pleased the Father. He felt love from the Father. But in the garden, when he went to the Father, what did he see? Not the Father's love, but the Father's wrath for the very first time. And it made him fall over. Jesus went for comfort to the Father. And saw the cup. He went for strength to the Father and saw the cup. He went for encouragement to the Father and saw the cup. He went for help and saw the cup. What a shift. No wonder he began to be distressed. No wonder he was astonished. No more comfort for you, Jesus. Just the cup of God's wrath. No more strength for you. The cup of God's wrath. No more encouragement for you. The cup of God's wrath. That's for you. There's no sign of your loving Father. Just the cup of His wrath. This is the Father that once thundered from heaven. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. 
And now, this son with whom he was pleased faces the father's wrath for sin. Notice what he prays. Mark summarizes it. Then we have a quotation from Jesus. He fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And We should stop there. We Christians who are familiar with this passage very quickly move on from remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Let's not sugarcoat what happens here. Before we get to not your will, not my will, but yours be done, Jesus asks the Father in no uncertain terms, I don't want to do this. Please remove this cup from me. Jesus does not want to drink the wrath, the cup of the wrath of God. He does not want to be in that moment the sin bearer of the world. He wants this cup removed as far from him as he could. This is no clinical, dispassionate, detached prayer. The writer to the Hebrews says that in the garden, Jesus called out to his father with loud cries and tears. Remove this cup. What Mark records is just a sentence or two. That was only a summary. Jesus said more. I can imagine his desperation as he goes to the father and sees the father's wrath. I can imagine him shouting, no, 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 anything but that. I can imagine him crying out, I can't do it. I'm not strong enough to bear the weight. Death is one thing. Wrath, totally something else. Help, there's got to be another way. You're the God of the universe. Through you, all things were made. Surely we can come up with an agreement that doesn't involve me experiencing your wrath on that cross. You can do anything, and together we can do something to make sure that we can, do, we, we can make another plan. Can you do this for me? I'm your one and only son, your only begotten son. Where are you? Can you help me? Please remove this, remove this cup for me. I can imagine Jesus crying and through tears saying, I thought dying in their place would be different. This is hard, way more difficult. I've never seen your wrath, and here I am facing it on my own. Please rescue me. Let's find another way. Do you hear me? I can imagine him weeping. I did no wrong. I always did your will. But this, I need you to remove this from me. There has to be another way. We can pour your wrath out somewhere else. Anywhere else. Just not on me. Remove that cup. There's got to be a way. And then he says, Yet not what I will, but what you will. Yet not what I will, but what you will. We have no indication in this prayer that Jesus changed his mind and said, okay, give me the cup. I think it's a great idea. Obviously, at one level, he, they made the plan together. But at another level, he decides to do what the Father wants over and against himself. 
One writer says his, being Jesus, his victory was not in merging his will with the Father's will. It was choosing what the Father wanted over and against what he wanted. Jesus pushed aside his feelings and he did not go with his heart and he submitted to the Father. It wasn't easy. He wrestled in prayer, but he got there. He got there. He was honest. He was clear. He said what he wanted. He said, he, he, he laid out before the Lord. But then he said, yet not what I will, but what you will. In other words, it's not what he wants, but he will be obedient. And even though he's troubled and distressed, feeling as if he is about to die, he turns away from those feelings and follows God's plan for him. Donald McLeod says this, the wonder of the love of Christ for his people is not that for, say, for their sake he faced death without fear, but for their sake he faced it terrified. For their sake he faced it terrified. I hope this picture this visit to Gethsemane, I hope it unsettles you. I hope it disturbs you. I hope it bothers you. Why? Because we have to understand the horror of God's wrath to be able to begin to grasp the love of God. We don't just have a Savior who suffered with us. We have a Savior who suffered for us. In our place. He took our place. He took the wrath of God that was stored up for us. If we're Christians, he took that wrath and said, I'll take it. Don't want to. I want to do anything else. I, I, I want to come up with some other plan, but he took it. And you might be here and you might be thinking, how could a God of love, because the Bible says God is love, how can a God of love be so furious, so angry? The reason he's furious at sin is precisely because he's a God of love. A God of love could not sit idly by and, not, and let injustice just reign. He wouldn't sit, a God of love could not sit idly by and watch the strong crush the weak or see people murdered or see others taken advantage, see war ravage. The, ravage the landscape, see people inflict suffering on others or themselves. He can't stand by and do nothing in the face of murder and cowardice and rape and, se- and, and, and racism and sexual abuse and disobedience and war and slavery and genocide. These things and many more cry out for justice. A God, for God to be loving, he must be wrathful against evil. He must punish injustice. A God of love must punish injustice. The miracle is, that though we live in a broken world, we're broken too. And evil's not just out there ravaging society, it ravages us. We are, in our own ways, purveyors of injustice too. The miracle of the cross is this. At the, Father, the, at the cross, the Father treated the Son as if He were personally responsible for all the sins of His people. That's the cup. All the anger... And wrath stored up for the sins of 
of his people gathered up, put in that cup for Jesus. Thus the horror. He faced something much more frightening than Hale or Socrates or Polycarp. He faced the justice of God for the sins of other people. It's one thing to pay for your own sins. He had none to pay for. It's one thing to pay for the sins of a room full of people. It's another thing to pay for the sins of multitudes. Imagine the wrath of God, an infinite God. And what was stored up for a multitude of people. What wrath. All to be put on Jesus. No wonder he said, remove this cup for me. You can do anything. There has to be another way. Where he deserved blessing, he received wrath. But we asked for another way. He went anyway. How different his response is in this garden than, re- than the response of another man in a different garden. In the beginning, in Eden, God said to Adam, you can enjoy everything. Just stay away from that one tree. It will look good for fruit, but don't eat it. And Adam went to that tree and ate it. In Gethsemane, a different garden, God said to Jesus, you've got nothing to enjoy. You must go to that tree and die. And he did. Adam saw the tree, saw that it was good for fruit. He said, there must be another way. Surely God's holding out on me. Not his will, but my will be done. Jesus, he said said at the cross, there has to be another way. But not my will, but yours be done. Adam heard the Father and did what he wanted. Jesus heard the Father and did what the Father wanted. Every single one of us in this room, without exception, would have done what Adam did. And none of us in this room, without exception, would have done what Jesus did. And yet, and yet, Jesus takes the cup. He says, yet not my will, but yours be done. Yet not my will, but yours be done. It's no wonder he didn't die like Hale and Socrates and Polycarp. He faced the wrath of God for us. And in the depths of his darkness, his followers, they're of no help. He's crying out. He's weeping. In their sleep. Verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. See what he says there? He doesn't say, hey, you guys know what I'm doing? My legs don't work. The father I've enjoyed 
perfect communion and fellowship with for all eternity, forever, has turned his back on me, and now I'm going to taste the wrath of God for sinners like you? You're not even doing me the courtesy of staying awake? That's not what he does, is it? He says, watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. He's thinking about them. That's quintessential Jesus right there. Thinking about other people. Working on behalf of others. And he even takes it a step further when he says, the spirit is willing, indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, I know you could, you, if you could do it, you would do it. I know that about you guys. How kind. And that scene is repeated three times. How kind. Our Lord ever gracious, ever working for people who are asleep. And dull-witted. May we Christians in this room, may we stay awake and watch and pray and see what's really going on here in Gethsemane. Just like that was all over. Comes for a third time and there would be no more delay. There'd be no more waiting around. There'd be no more time for sleep. It's time for adrenaline to course through the veins of the disciples. And Jesus says, it is enough The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While Jesus was speaking these words, a group came out to arrest him. They're making their way up the Mount of Olives as Jesus says these words. We've been with Jesus on the way. We've been with Jesus in the garden. And now we witness his arrest. Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 52. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Finally, the Jewish leaders, they got their man. They got him. They wouldn't have been able to apprehend him without the aid of Judas and his kiss of death. And Jesus here is captured. Jesus, the Son of God, the Holy One, is shackled like a common criminal and led away. More than that, everything he said about his disciples came true. His followers who were crowing and boasting 
about being ready to march to their collective collective deaths, all ran away. It was like somebody called out, every man for himself, and boom, gone. And he was arrested. And he began to reach out and grasp that cup that so horrified him, just as the Scriptures said. We've been with Jesus to Gethsemane. What can we take away? What can we take away as we've seen Jesus respond to his impending death in a way very different from others? One, we Christians, we can be grateful. We can be grateful. We can be grateful that he said, Remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. None of us would have said that. Jesus rejected his own desire so that he might do God's will and we might not be rejected. We should be grateful for the salvation we have because of Jesus. Our hope for salvation sits wholly and completely on Jesus. And if he says, Take this cup from me, I'm done. We are too. But he says, Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you, what you will, your will be done. What a salvation. Do you see as we visited Gethsemane that we could never earn this salvation? Jesus has given this to us. If our salvation was a treasure, we would never find it if we looked forever. If our salvation was a task, we would never be able to do well enough to earn it. If our salvation was to be purchased, we'd never be able to raise funds sufficient even if we gave our very lives. If our salvation was a destination, we would never have the strength to make our journey. But our salvation is none of these things. It is a gift, a gift given that costs us nothing. And Jesus, everything. Where would you be, Christian, without Jesus? Facing a cup of wrath. Now, where are we? Not facing it. We can be grateful. We can also see the love. Our gratefulness should transform us into love, transform our hearts into being loving toward Jesus. But also, look at what the Father did. See, it can be really tempting as you read the Bible to think, God is this ogre. He's always angry. He's the one who is just ready to fly off the handle. But remember, John said, God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. He wasn't kidding. He so loved the world. That's not the land and the sea and the sky. That's people. He sent his only son because that was the only way sinners could come to him. Why would he do that? Love. The father did not send his only son to the horrors of the cross to make us lovable, but because he loved us already. No one loves you like the father. No one. Look at what he did. 
What did he do? He ignored his son's cries. What did he do? He provided no relief in the midst of his troubles. What did he do? He gave no comfort in his distress. What did he do? He gave no encouragement in his sorrow. Why? Because he loved you and he loved me. There will be times in our lives when we cry out to the Lord and and we will feel like he doesn't hear us and he's not paying attention. But we know that's only a feeling because he did not hear his son's cries in Gethsemane. Because of that, we can know He hears us. There will be times in our lives when we feel no relief and we feel like God is completely absent when we're in our troubles. But we know that's just a feeling because we've been to Gethsemane. Jesus was provided no relief in Gethsemane. That way we know we will receive relief. There will be times in our life when we feel no comfort in the midst of distress. We know that that's just a feeling. Because Jesus was offered no comfort. We've been to Gethsemane. He got no comfort. We will get comfort. There will be times that we feel no encouragement in the midst of sorrow. We know that that's just a feeling. Because Jesus was ignored in his sorrow. We will never be left alone. In other words, Jesus was rejected by the Father. So that, we might not, so that we might not be rejected, but also so that we might just feel rejected from time to time. It's not real. The Father loves us. What can we take away? Gratefulness, love, peace. Peace. You have peace with God because Jesus didn't. Even as we see Jesus here in Gethsemane grappling with God's will for his life, does that bring you comfort? It brings me comfort. When you're in the throes of turmoil, he understands. In fact, there's nobody who understands like him. He's been there. Christian, he gets it. If you're here and you're not a Christian, Oh, look at him. That cup he drank. That cup he drank for any who would come to him and believe. His death. His death was a better death because he substituted himself for us. May we be people who visit Gethsemane from time to time. And remind ourselves of what God has done for us and the kind of salvation we have because of Christ. I'm so glad Jesus didn't die like Hale or Socrates or Polycarp. He died a better death. Let's pray. Pray for all of us here, Lord, that you would help us to appreciate what you've done. Lord, so many times, I know for myself and in my life, I can go around just mostly aware of my trials and my hardships, my troubles, my distresses. Thank you for these, for the brief few moments where we could look and join you in Gethsemane and behold 
our Savior with trouble that we will never have. We might be surprised by many things, but we're never going to be astonished at the fact that we have to drink the cup of God's wrath for our sins because Jesus did that. Thank you. I pray that you would help this to be Help this to be something that encourages all us that are saints. We know you are good. Bad things happen to us, Lord, from time to time, but that doesn't negate your goodness because we see what you've done for us in Christ. I pray for people in this room who might not be followers of you. pray that you would help them to want to follow you, to turn to you, to trust in you. Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking that cup and drinking it down to the bottom so that I might just die and not face wrath. So that we all, as any in here who are Christians, might just face death and that's all. Thank you. Awaken us, Lord. Help us to be aware of all you've done for us. And I pray that gratefulness would continue to well up, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.